0: Episode number one ninety-nine, Andrew Brocas.
1: I got X respects for as I can
0: see right through you. I can Welcome to the Heads Up Poker Podcast. This is Steve Barton. And this is Mike Snyderman. And this week, we have returning guest. Uh, he was on uh, episode 121, Andrew Brokus. He's uh, kind of a legend in the uh, TPE community. Made some uh, deep runs in the WSOP Main. Just been playing cards for, I think, about a decade and a half, making his living from uh, playing cards. So, uh, real, real smart guy. Very, very, like, I think, uh, I don't know what the word for it, Mikey, would be. Like, maybe theory-based. Um, just a... Uh, Real smart dude when
2: it comes to uh, cards, so I'm super excited. Yeah, Steve, I was surprised he even showed up once for this. Let well, well, alone twice, huh? Yeah, I, like, you know, Helmuth, some of these people, I guess you're just much more uh, likable than I've noticed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Andrew's great. Obviously, his uh, his videos on TPE are pretty uh, remarkable. I think they're some of the best. Yeah, when I, when I first joined TPE, it was like, I, I, lo- I like the hand histories. You know what I mean? I like kind of people bullshitting and having fun. And then I think the first video from him I watched, he's like, "Okay, I, I suggest you take out a paper and pencil." I'm like, "What yes. the fuck?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and of course, if you want to get po- get better at poker, um, you have to listen to the man, obviously, right? So.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: It. Uh, I, he's uh,
0: another thing he does that I think is. Um, I don't know if it's unique to him, but I kind of do the same thing whenever I'm teaching is is I'll have the students kind of pause and think like, what would you really do in this scenario? You know, whether I'm teaching fire, you know, you have a a fire, a garage fire, it's blown out of this window, the main door is shut. So is the man door. What do you do? And he does the same thing with his videos. He'll say, okay, we're in this spot here. We have ace king, we flop top pair and we're under the gun. So it's on us. You have two opponents behind you. Pause the video and run through in your mind what you would actually do. And by doing that and pausing it, it really gives you a lot more insight because you often find that, or at least I do, I probably would have bet a different size or checked what I should have bet or bet what I should have checked. And, and then he runs through the next four or five minutes of explaining his reasoning behind it. It's, it's a real effective way to learn, I think.
2: For sure. Yeah. Uh, Steve, I should apologize ahead of time if I'm not entirely lucid today. I, uh, again, I played poker till like 5:30 AM and then, there and, uh, there's the trains roaring in the background, by the way, I live, uh, I live beautifully right near the beach, but there's also the train too. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I came home real late and I, I've had trouble sleeping. So I took some sleeping pills last night. Oh, okay. Okay. And I was going to the, uh, and I, I thought we were doing this on Thursday, so I, I apologize for being so disorganized because I'm still kind of in a in a fog here. A fog here. How yeah. it,
0: uh, how's your last uh, couple of weeks been, played?
2: Um, pretty good, pretty good. I had a pretty epic session last night at two five. I made forty three hundred. Wow, nice. Which is pretty it's pretty hard to do at two five. You know when you're buying for eight hundred, but yeah. uh, I just I just kept uh, kept cooler, coolering the hell out of people, and you know that's so that's. Uh, that's that's a, that's a changer for the month in the, the level I play for sure but we'll see if we can uh, see if we can keep it up yeah, yeah. Right cool
0: cool I, uh, oh I uh, did your uh, suggestion well I actually downloaded it while we were recording the last podcast but I started listening to the uh, how not to die yep it uh, very interesting very interesting uh especially what he was saying about The um, smoke from cooking meat could be really bad for you. You know, they did um, a lot um, of chefs on on chefs that, uh, you know, have just been cooking for the last 40 years and and those that have been cooking primarily vegetables and the ones that have been primarily cooking meat. And, you know, in some cases they looked identical with cigarette smokers. It's like, wow, that I had no idea. (laughs) You know, and they developed COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you know, like you know, chronic uh, illnesses from uh, just cooking meat
2: all the time. Yeah. I mean, I I think the the research seems convincing, first of all. I mean, everybody, there's a million diet books and whatever. Of course, this isn't really a diet book. This is about – but, like, I remember the one stat that jumped out at me is, like, they did a research of, like, some rural area of China, and of 300,000 people there, only one of them had died from heart disease. Yeah. Where in the US that number would be, you know, astronomically higher. Yeah, 45%. Yeah, these guys had nothing but like plants and nuts. They just didn't, they didn't eat meat. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't have access to the sugar and all that kind of stuff, sugar, McDonald's and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't know, it seemed like a life changing thing for me. And, uh, but we will see, but I, I've stuck with it. I still eat a lot, but like my cheating days are peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Okay. but or- organic, organic peanut butter and jelly, you know, no synthetic sugar however you want to put it, no animal fat. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the difference and we'll see if I can stick with it. But, um, so far I've been kind of, uh, I kind of cheat with salads I like I like making the smoothies with the spinach. Okay. I should actually be uh, I need a little cauliflower and spinach, uh, you know, broccoli, and I should have make some salads. But um, are you going to make any changes because of this? You think or
0: I think so. Yeah, I think it's funny that you said you cheated by putting in only spinach. I'm, I never thought I'd hear those words leave your mouth. <laughs> yeah, no. um, the Brazil nuts sound pretty interesting. Now I'm only ten percent of the way through the book. I, I think it's seventeen hours longer than I've listened to two hours of it. Um, but it's, uh, the Brazil nuts was pretty convincing to me that, you know, you can have a noticeable, testable difference by eating four Brazil nuts a month. And I'm like, okay, that takes zero effort. <laughs> so one pound bag of Brazil nuts that should last me about a year, uh, uh, on Amazon, they should be here any day. So I could eat one Brazil nut a, a week. That's, that's not difficult. Um, as far as the meat, it really has made me stop and question. I haven't changed my diet yet, but uh, it has made me stop and question. I wonder if this venison really is good for me or not. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I mean, it's about as natural as you can get. They're just eating fruit and berries and grass, uh, but I don't know how much of it is strictly meat or how much of it is because they feed cows corn now, and you know they're just pumping. What you know, the cheapest way that, that they can feed the chicken, they do. And you're essentially eating that, I guess. You know, um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I like what Tim Ferriss said in The Four Hour Body. Was he said that, you know, perhaps it's not that um, it's the the lack of meat in the diet that is making people live longer, but maybe it's the presence of even though meat eaters continue like eat more vegetables. So you're just eating two or three times as much vegetables as you would have. And that's really what's making the difference and not the absence of meat. I don't know. I don't know. I mean I'm I'm excited about the book. I've been listening to it back and forth to work every day. And then whenever uh, I got free time. And it's very, very interesting. I like it a lot.
2: Yeah, like I said, I I have to uh and then there's quite a lot of cook there's uh there's a whole website um I think, with him, which has, you know, like, chat groups of people talking about uh, recipes they use, that kind of thing, too. Okay, okay. I forget Wait, the name of it.
0: Do you put, like, a lot of mushrooms in there or something to give it kind of, like, a meaty substance or not
2: really? No. Uh, when my mother was here, we made, like, a, a good pasta dish, which had, you know, a bunch of vegetables, the onions, sliced mushrooms, all that kind of stuff. Okay, but i have not really done much much cooking here i I mean i kind of have an excuse i'm playing poker 60 hours a week and taking care of a kid yeah but um yeah the other thing was interesting in terms of you're saying easy with the brazil although i've been eating i have brazil nuts every day like a handful i'm told that's bad
0: yeah he said that that was bad to eat too much because they're really high in some type of uh, i wanted to say element right now like we're staring at the periodic table Um, if they got they're really high in something and eating too much of them. I remember him saying bad. I don't remember why, but I just I Right. Yeah. I mean I need energy.
2: to I just note to self for a week. Done. Right. I mean this is not as simple as um eat more vegetables and stay away from sugar and meat. There's you know, there's some more. Uh the other thing is uh actually I don't know if I got it from this book or something else I watched on um the video, but uh some of these, you talk about easy, like some of these, some of these spices that are like supposedly have amazing like medicinal oh, value. <clears throat> yeah, turmeric and uh, curcumin. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I've been also doing um, the chia seeds are really good. I forget what, so I've been throwing that in my smoothie.
0: Okay. Yeah. When I used to make smoothies, I'd throw the chia seeds in there too. It takes no effort. You can buy three pounds of them, and it's good for a year. You <laughs> know, super easy
2: yeah for sure so I'm gonna to try to stick with this um, like I think I s- said my I want to really wanted my parents to do this take care of themselves and they uh, my mother said we'll do it if you do it so me and uh, me and mom have a have a little little uh, text exchange always about what we're eating that sort of thing so
0: nice right on, right on. well um, should we bring in uh, Andrew Brokus? please Stevie Okay, Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and we will be back with Andrew Brokus. Tired of baggling tournament after tournament? Start winning tournaments. Join me at Tournament Poker Edge and start playing like a professional. Watch the videos, post tough hands in the forum, and get a response from Andrew Brokus. It's free coaching from a pro who's been making a living playing poker for over a decade. Train your brain to make the right decisions automatically and start winning money. Tournament poker is one of the fastest evolving games there is. It's always changing. Bet sizing, donk betting, ace and king blockers. You have to stay on top of it if you want to win. And TPE is the answer. When you join, get the discount with the code HUPMONTH, HUPQUARTER, or HUPYEAR. Study and learn with me and other people that are just like you and me. TournamentPokerEdge.com. Uh, well, Andrew, uh, thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. It's it's good to talk to you guys. And hi Mike, and I've been corresponding some with uh, with Steve, but it's good to hear your voice.
0: Yes, nice to talk to you as well. Yeah, it's about the same as uh, nails on a chalkboard. I think he's being nice there, Mike. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs>
0: Well, I was uh, talking up quite a bit uh, before you came on. Um, uh, I was was talking up about your uh, videos on TPE, and uh, one of the things that I really um, uh, like is that, uh, and I haven't seen any other instructors do it yet, is how you do the thing where you pause the video and you run through in your mind of what... uh, uh, what you would do in this similar, similar uh, scenario or if you're reviewing a hand history or whatever it is. and You mean
1: like uh, encouraging viewers to do that, you mean?
0: Yeah, encouraging, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the line that I've heard a lot times. <laughs> I would encourage you to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, where did you get that? Did you take a teaching class and learn it or what the –
1: I I didn't take a teaching class but I have done a fair bit of work so like I um, even when I was in in college I worked for the Chicago public schools um, doing You know, I I was heavily involved in debate when I was in high school and in college in like competitive uh, debate or forensics Mm -hmm. and uh, I, I worked with an organization that ran programs like that in high schools in Chicago public schools and then I started a similar league in in Boston when I graduated and I ran that for a few years so I was never like formally trained as a teacher but I did a fair bit of teaching like working directly with students teaching them things and I also worked a lot with teachers and knew a lot of teachers and like saw effective teachers in action so I think I've picked up a fair bit of uh, sort of the low-hanging fruit of, of what's considered like best practice among professional educators, and I mean, some of it also has been from corresponding with uh, Carlos. So I know you guys know, but if someone used to be a teacher, you just had him on your podcast. Yes, yes, exactly. Just just released an episode with him uh, yesterday. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if, in, in terms of you know people with a, a teaching background who are now poker players and good friends of mine, um, you know, he, he's kind of reaffirmed some of that. As, uh, as well but yeah and i mean some of it i guess is just my own viewing of videos like i know that i'm capable of checking out during videos and sometimes i do like sometimes i give myself permission if it's just, like something that i wouldn't watch otherwise you know I might give myself permission to say like well it's better to watch this in the background and not watch it at all but ideally i want to like my personal goal for making videos is to make videos that can't that can't be watched in the background like videos that Require active concentration ideally videos that can't be watched on like 2x speed or you know You hear all these all these things that people do to kind of try to squeeze more content And I guess I would rather create content That's just like dense enough that you don't need to listen to it at 2x speed
0: Yeah, yeah, I I've never been able to do that. I I uh, I think I missed too much, you know, one thing I did start doing um, uh, I kind of got out of the habit and then I started back up a couple months ago is I'll start up a TPE video um, just before I go to sleep. I put it on my little iPad uh, next to the bed, kind of propped up and put the the brightness all the way down as far as it'll go so it's just kind of dim. And what I've noticed, I read this uh, article, I can't recall where I read it from now, but they said that whatever your kind of last thoughts are just before you go to sleep, it will influence what you dream about and if you can dream about whatever subject you're studying at the time, uh, it will kind of enhance and speed up your learning. And so I started experimenting with that with uh, TPE videos, and it actually works. I do dream about poker while I'm uh, sleeping if I put on a video just as I'm about to go to sleep. So it, um, have, have, you, have you done that before? Have you heard of this?
1: Um, I have heard of it. To be honest, dreaming about poker doesn't sound that appealing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not on your top ten list of things to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm more. I, I generally read fiction before I go to bed. Um, I, I, which even that, I think some people would would question as a as a sleep strategy. But I think if 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 you were solely concerned about the the quality of your sleep, like it sounds like you've maybe chosen to prioritize. Um, quality of learning or quality of like information absorption over quality of sleep. Um, Just from a quality of sleep perspective, I think giving yourself less to think about or like not having an active mind when you go to sleep, I think is likely, best in in that like if you just want sort of a a sound night's rest um i think probably even reading fiction might be less ideal but i would guess that like nonfiction or something where your brain is really actively trying to retain and process information is probably not that conducive to like ideal rest interesting you
0: know i've i've wondered about that because i think uh I probably am. I know that looking at screens before you go to sleep is is bad. And so I have the setting on it so it turns off after about uh, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. There could be some negative uh, impacts of even that 20 minutes of uh, having the screen up there. It could make my brain think that it's still light out for another hour or something.
1: Yeah, although I think those are kind of two separate effects. Like the, the screen thing, the, the speculation that I've heard on that anyway is that it kind of relates to like primal, um, you know, p- people got themselves in the mood to sleep, like early humans got themselves in the mood to sleep with uh, light from a fire. And so like the the blue light of a screen is less conducive to sleep or like communicates the wrong thing to your brain than like a, a more, uh-huh. more red light. Um, That's I, why I think, the night mode is
0: kind of orange,
1: yes, yeah, and uh I said, but i said the the thing of just like having stuff on your mind is more um just like if your mind is active, I think you or many people I don't know about you, but many people have a harder time getting to sleep if they're like ruminating on things, or one of the things that keeps people up is um is is just that their their brain is like stuck on something and not ready to rest, huh, okay. That said, I have one of my favorite pictures of Carlos is from when he was visiting me in uh, San Francisco, and he's sort of you know, in San Francisco, we don't have like a spare bedroom, so he was like on a in a sleeping bag on the floor. And, I saw uh, yeah, visions, and so, visions of check racing in his head or something. Exactly. Yeah, he's he's like passed out with his uh, iPad and uh, and TPU. So I mean, I, you're certainly not the only one who mm-hmm. who does it, but uh, no, it's it's not
2: for me. Yeah.
0: Okay.
2: Okay. Can I ask about the uh, the fiction, Steve and I? It's we always. Totally interested in different stuff. Is there any uh, any book recommendations you throw out there just from the last six or twelve months of reading? I'd be curious. Uh,
1: the the one I'm reading right now, I I think is fantastic. It's called The Goldfinch. Um, Donna tart I believe, is the author's name. Okay, it it yeah, won the, the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago, and it had been recommended to me by a few people. And i had been and I remember like seeing it in bookstores and things. I don't know why I didn't read it sooner. I, I had a recollection that I had like read a description of what it was about, and it didn't sound that that interesting to me. But now like now that I actually know what it's about I don't know why I wouldn't have been interested in it sooner and I think it's just just fantastic I mean it's it's the plot wise it's it's pretty interesting and like fast paced which a lot of from literary stuff is not always sure. um, is like literature isn't always uh plot forward and this is is pretty plot facing which I like and um, it's also just very very well written just you know from from the perspective of someone who, who writes and tries to get better at writing I think there's a lot you can learn from from that book as well. So I'm I'm I would recommend that one very highly.
2: Uh, is there a class? I I, th- I know I've heard Nate mention David Foster Wallace is one of his favorite writers, and I, I remember you, you more reading. On him, okay. Is there any other writers you could
1: Well, I, I mean? actually I, I would I would have the caveat on Wallace. I actually like I sorry I do like Wallace's fiction. I like his nonfiction. Better and I think it's a lot more accessible. So Wallace is an example of someone like Infinite Jest is not really a plot forward book. <laughs> Infinite right. Jest is a very difficult book to follow even at a literal level to kind of process like what's happening is, is quite difficult. Like when I got to the end of Infinite Jest, a the end comes at a very surprising moment. Like it's not you like, all of a sudden the book is just like over. It doesn't feel like anything was resolved.
2: Yeah, his first novel I read actually ends in mid sentence.
1: That broom of the system.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that, I don't know if that was you know. That, and I have, obviously it was deliberate of just you know.
1: right yeah but no but he he's very his his fiction is very um avant-garde is probably like there's a lot of words he wouldn't want me to use to describe it i think but sure. it's, it's challenging like it's especially *Broom of the system because that was something that he wrote as a i mean that I started as his thesis i believe for his um when he was getting his phd but um it's very he has some kind of like high-minded literary things in, in mind that are not what a lot of people, especially if you're not someone who reads a lot of literature to think you're just going to like, oh, I'll just read Infinite Jest. Like, I think that is likely to turn a lot of people off to Wallace. I do think it's a great book. Like, it's not to like it, um, but I think it's, it's a hard starting point. The one I often point people towards uh, for David Foster Wallace is there's both an essay and a collection of essays that have this title, um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And I think both the the, the title essay is, is fantastic. It's about his experiences on a uh, luxury cruise line, um, but it kind of gets into larger speculation about what, we either as Americans or kind of as like modern people think of as luxury, and whether that's really luxurious or like why we're looking for those particular things, and also why he found it very kind of depressing and unsatisfying. Um, so it's it's a very interesting essay, but it's also very you know it was written for maybe Harper's or some you know, like a more popular interest magazine, um, so it's not it, it's it's much more accessible than his fiction. Like it's the sort of thing that anyone could just pick up and, and read and get a lot out of, and I think it's extraordinarily entertaining. It's very funny. It's insightful. It's deep. It's, uh, I just think it's It's great. And I think once you, like, I fell in love with Wallace through his nonfiction first, and then that gave me the motivation to stick with um, very difficult. It's very difficult to read
2: fiction. Right. What'd you think of his last novel? Like, I forget the name. I read, like, the first 40 pages. of like, Pale King? Okay. okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, That that's a tricky one because it's not finished. Um. So it's, right. it's, it's more like fragments. He, he he committed suicide, and his, I think it was maybe his, his uh, publisher or his publisher in combination with his wife i I don't want to get the details wrong but they sort of stitched this thing together from fragments that he so he'd been working on this big project so like as a novel it's not i mean it's not a novel it's it's pieces of a novel it doesn't really hold together as a as a singular thing um i think i do think it's very good and there's a lot of like individual tidbits that are good even if they don't necessarily come together that well as a whole Um, but it's it's sort of a meditation on um or the boredom is like the theme that he's that he's taking which is interesting um at least least a third of it is discussing tax codes yeah exactly and it it centers on the irs um the, the, the sort of main character is named david foster Wallace, although it's not I don't think it's autobiographical. I don't think he ever actually worked for the IRS, but it's written as though he did. Um, It's sort of like a a supposed memoir of this David Foster Wallace person um, who worked for the IRS. And it was an interesting starting point for for thinking about boredom. Um, But it, it gets at a lot of things that it was among his concerns in his nonfiction writing as well which is sort of choices we make about what to pay attention to or why we choose to distract ourselves um, which has only become more relevant like he he died before smartphones, but the, the kind of constant presence of, I, I'm actually relevant to Steve going to bed, listening to uh, poker videos as well. Um, but just are sort of constantly distracting ourselves with things. There's sort of a question like, why do we feel the need to do that? Is these really the things we want to be putting our attention on um, why can't we just sit with ourselves uh, or, you know, what would it take to to do that? Why is that maybe an important thing to be able to do? I think all that stuff sort of at least gets hinted at in um, in Pilking.
0: Yeah, I constantly have the need to feel like I need to be doing something. Uh... I guess it's obvious, though, now that I've verbalized it. If I feel like I'm, I <laughs> sleep when I'm sleeping, and that's like getting better at
1: fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's a very prevalent attitude in, in the poker world, and there might even be something to it in terms of, like, if you really want to be the very best at something, you probably do need to, like, eat, sleep, breathe that thing. But I don't know how many people – like, I think most poker players, and I'm, certainly myself included, are not really aspiring to be the very best. And I think a lot of people will – say that that's what they want. I mean, I, I had this conversation pretty much every time I start working with a new student. You know, I'll ask them about their goals in poker and a lot of times people will say to me, well, my goal is to be the best. I'm going to be the very best or something. And, and it's like, I don't... I mean usually when i hear that there's a few people where i really believe them when they say that like mike leah comes to mind ryan the Plant comes to mind there are a few people that i can think of who i don't think they're clearly very very like driven and focused and i believe they really do want to be the best at poker most people when they say that it sounds more to me like they just haven't really thought about what their goals are and um i think it's like there's other ways you can, you can enjoy playing poker, you can even make money from poker without necessarily like aspiring to be the best. And I think there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes around the poker world that's just sort of shallow self-improvement. Um, I don't know if alpha is quite the right word to describe it, but just this kind of like constantly yeah. optimizing without really questioning why are you trying to optimize this
0: particular thing? Hmm. okay, interesting. That's
2: actually kind of what I wanted to talk about, Steve. Uh, you can interrupt me at any time. Is just... Um, the coaching I was going to say pretty pretty much question that right away like your first coaching session um, how are you do you have them send them send send you hands before you even start so you can kind of get a sense of their level of play or is it just kind of um, I actually
1: have a a diagnostic that I created for this purpose I kind of initially I I started it with the idea and I do think it's actually best when it's a little more directed by the student like if people and i do occasionally get this or people come to me and they have a very specific idea of like i want to work on these things here these are my concerns uh, etc so it's great when that happens and i think it's very effective but i found that a lot of people don't have that level you know which is reasonable like that's part of what they're looking for from a coach is like no you need to tell me what i need to work on i don't know what i need to work on Uh, so i think i think a lot of people were intimidated by that prospect of me saying like well just put you know pick out a few spots that you find troubling and, you know, and I'll use that to start to get an idea of of where you are. So I actually created a a diagnostic, some of which, which is like kind of broader questions, like, what are your goals in poker? How do you approach things now? There's some like bigger bigger, picture questions, but then there's also some, you know, breaking down a particular hand and decisions within that hand and asking for people to, to flesh out. Why they're doing what they're doing, and you know, it's, it's a very normal spot. It's, a, it's a, just sort of like you raise a king pre-flop and get an ace side flop, and then a flush draw comes in. You know, like it's not a, it's not like a super complicated check raising the river for three x pot sort of spot. It's, a, it's it's meant to be a kind of run-of-the-mill. Just let's get a sense of how you're thinking through these like bread-and-butter decisions that come up all the time. And even if you're making the right decisions, what I'm really interested in is what's the reasoning behind it. Right. Which is so what,
2: what, what I was gonna say, way in doubt, you go back to poker 101 stuff, make sure they're at least thinking along this line.
1: Well, I don't even necessarily think of it as going back. I think it's more, there's a lot of things where people are doing, like, I think what people really need is thought process, right? A lot of people, when they're getting one on one coaching, I mean, think that's, that's the thing that I can provide on one on one coaching that people are going to have a harder time getting from just watching a video or something. So you can learn mechanical things. You can just look at a chart of which hand should you open from which position or stuff along those lines. But I think what happens is a lot of people are doing things mechanically and don't really know why they're doing them. Even like betting, you know, betting a flop when you flop top pair or something, like a lot of people actually have trouble articulating what's the real reason to bet in that, in that case, or, or what are the reasons to bet in that case. And even if they're doing the right thing, because they don't know why they're doing it, they have trouble adapting, for for instance, to a, you know a different sort of opponent where maybe betting is not the right play, or even just in a different circumstance where if there's more players in the pot or if you don't flop a pair or if you're much more shallow or just anytime you change any of those variables, people essentially aren't prepared to deal with spots that are not wrote for them because all they have is a mechanical strategy. Like because they don't know the why, they're not in a position to um, adapt to something new. So I, I, I try to help people understand why is it the things you're already doing that work, why do they work? So that you can then apply those concepts in situations that are less familiar to you. Hmm.
2: That's cool. Have you, ever, have you ever had to tell a student, um, you sense that a student just could not be a winning player or is unlikely to, I don't know, Is, it, is it, can someone be uncoachable? You're, you'll hear that in sports quite a bit. <laughs> this this player is uncoachable. They just think they have the answer. They're not going to. I don't know. I'm just yeah.
1: curious. That's- so that that last thing you said of like thinking they have the answer, I, I think that's the central problem is when people just aren't open to hearing that they're, uh, yeah, I guess they're just not open to taking in new information. Another okay. of- I, I think I've been pretty fortunate or maybe I don't know if it's just fortune, but, <laughs> especially now with my having done the podcast for so many years and having done videos and things, it's very rare that I get a person coming to me who doesn't have a pretty good sense of what they're going to get. Okay. And I think that those people are sort of self or like filtering themselves out already. Uh, and like the coaching's not cheap. So I think most people, I mean, my experience has been people are generally coming in with an attitude of of like openness. And to some degree, it's my job to to break that down like obviously people have some understandable degree of reluctance to find fault with themselves or or, you know acknowledge that they're doing something wrong or could be doing something better like there's there's almost always some kind of like psychological hurdle where i feel like part of my job is to understand or to to overcome people's psychological resistance to, to change i guess i would also say there are, I think people are sometimes looking for more than just getting better at poker when they hire a coach. I think some people want, um, it's, it's partly entertainment value for some people and some people right. want someone to to talk to. So, I mean, I always, I will try to at least give a heads up to someone and say like, Hey, you know, you're, um, you're spending a lot of time talking during the, <laughs> during this session. And uh, every time I try to explain something, you're like cutting me off and, and being very defensive. I won't necessarily be this blunt about it, but I'll try to flag that for people and say, like, I think we're not making a lot of progress because um, you keep explaining why you did the thing you did rather than listening
2: to why you should maybe do something different. Please stop crying. I don't care about your mother. Let's go back to the
1: <laughs> But ultimately, it's like, you know, it's, it's their money if that's how they, like, I, I try to, uh, like, make them aware of the concern, but ultimately, like, I do think there are people where that's really what, what they want, and, you know, if that's
2: how they want to spend their time and money, I'm okay with that. I think Assassinato said the same thing. He said at least 50% of coaching sessions are people just wanting to talk. So I
1: wouldn't that. put it at 50%, but yeah, it's um, it's a factor for sure. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Where well, what's your what's the most fun part for you? I don't know if, if you want to, the uh, the coaching, uh, creating the the content, the videos for Red Chip or TPE or uh, playing poker. I don't know because uh, I,
1: I do think the mix is important. Uh, like I mean, it is nice being able to like I can I can get burnt out on any of those things. So being able to go back and forth between them and even to some degree having like with coaching, it's a little less flexible because I kind of have to do it when students want to do. The coaching. the I mean, coaching is probably the part that feels most like work, right? That's, that's the part where I'm accountable to someone other than myself. It's the part where I'm on someone else's schedule. Um, but I also, it's the thing that I spend the least amount of time doing. I think relative, if you count like writing videos and writing, uh, or producing videos and also like writing and other kind of instructional things that that are like asynchronous. Like if you put all those in one bucket, I probably spend more time doing that than I do doing like one-on-one coaching via Skype. So, I mean, that's the part that feels the most like work. It's probably also the part that has the most potential to be rewarding, which is maybe not a coincidence. Um, but you know, when you get a student that you really see them make a lot of progress, um, You know that's that's very rewarding to feel like you helped this person achieve uh, achieve a
2: goal. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any uh, just quickly? Because I'm thinking of doing this. I'm curious. um, I talked to one of your red chip guys, Greg Vale, who's like the uh, the O A specialist. I guess you'd say because I kind of want to learn that game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and in Big O, do you have a lot of no limit guys or trying to transition to the mixed games? The conventional wisdom is that's where all the all the money in the future is going to be.
1: Um. Well, so, uh, first off, I, I would not be the person to talk to if okay. if you
2: were trying to do something like
1: that. Um, I've occasionally had people ask me, like, hey, do you think you could help me with PLO? And, I mean, the answer is basically just no. Like, I can't okay. really. <laughs> um, And in, in terms of, you know, whether that's where the money is in the future, Nate has a... a I don't know if this is original to him, but it, he's where I got it from um, with, with regard to PLO. Um, PLO is the game of the future and it always will be. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I, I do think there are some structural reasons why no limit is, uh, is as popular as it is. I do agree. Like, PLO is making some inroads I think if you're interested in no limit it's a lot more fun for you than those other games especially if you're not aspiring to play really high stakes like I have been in situations where there wasn't a big no limit game available or at least I was going to have to play a no limit PLO mix so I feel like at, at some point you probably have to do and like even more so if you're Phil Galfond or somebody like I think you kind of do have to be able to play other games if you want to be able to play at your preferred stakes but if you're trying to play like two five I don't know I think I think two, five, no limit is going to be viable. Right. I mean, it's dangerous to say indefinitely, but like I'm not really predicting the demise of two, five limit.
2: So in, 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 the, in the summer, when, when you, uh, if you're in Vegas and playing a fair amount of cash, it's going to be pretty much all no limit hold them, unless there's some sort of weird can't get a table for a few hours kind of thing. For me personally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I played a little bit of um, five card PLO over the summer. That's probably the game that I'm, at least next most interested in getting good at, um, and I like st- or I like PLO eight. I like I play the PLO eight WSOP event. I mean, I do a little bit of that stuff either for fun or, like you said, if it's a function of you know waiting for a waiting for a table. But yeah, in in general, I'm pretty exclusively like 99 percent of my serious poker play is no limit.
0: Yeah, you know, I play PLO about three times a year, and it's always because I accidentally registered a tournament that was PLO. <laughs> <laughs> it's never delivered.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a link that's worth plugging.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Why do I have four cards? Oh, damn it.
2: <laughs> wait, wait, um, Andrew, have you, uh, have you ever got coaching?
1: I have not, no. no okay. Really? Wow! I'm you know, I I have kind of questioned whether that is not a, a mistake. I think there's a fair chance it is like I think if I could go back in time, it might make sense for me too, and maybe it would still make sense for me too i don't know, but my concern is always like i'm very um diligent, conscientious, whatever like I have a pretty high degree of um I don't know, like I, it's just investment, I guess, in my in my, in my student success. So, like it's something that I, I try to take pretty seriously, and I've had a fair number of people come to me, you know, students who have had coaching from other people, including some people who are like much bigger names than I am in in the poker world, who have kind of said this person just didn't seem that interested in the coaching you know it was sort of like everything was on me it was just kind of like they just showed up and would give me some like passive feedback on hands that i put in front of them but it just didn't feel like they were really trying all that hard like okay. if i could if i could like go back to 2008 and get coaching from 2018 andrew i would happily do that um i guess this, this is just like a trust issue on my part because i don't mean to imply there's no other good coaches out there it's more but my concern is always like oh what if this person like is not taking it seriously like, i just i I have trouble, and I, I guess this is more my hang up, but um, believing that other people are gonna like put as much effort into it as I do.
2: Uh, so you, just just quickly on the, the coaching thing, are, are you, um, is there ever like a hand, I mean, I'm, where you're like kind of, you feel you're a little lost and you're like, I need to talk to someone about this. Or if you talk to someone, it's like, oh, this is a close spot, it's interesting, what would you have done?
1: i'm It's more common that I would go to software for something like that. Okay. Um, I definitely do have people that I might you know email to to run a hand past or to get their opinion on it, that's almost always going to be for exploitive reasons, so I'm just sort of like, well, you know, do, do you think it's reasonable to fold here so especially like actually just on that podcast episode that we just discussed uh, with with Carlos, um, he and I talked about some spots from Uh, of relatively small stakes live tournament, like something that's closer to the stakes that he usually plays than the stakes that I usually play. And so it was kind of interesting to get his feedback because I think he probably has a better sense of how to exploit those folks than I do. So I might be better equipped than he would be to say like, here's what piosalver would would predict doing in this situation but if i want to say well how much should i deviate from a piosalver sort of recommendation given who i'm playing against that's the kind of thing where i'd be interested in getting a different person's perspective if it's more a matter of i'm in a spot and i'm kind of like i have no idea whether i should have like barreled the turn here um or what my range should look like when i Bet the turn here, or how frequently I should be betting the turn? What kinds of hands I should be betting the turn with? I'm a lot more likely to do Salva um, you know, or, or Poker Snowy or something than to go to another human. Okay, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, um, uh, your uh, your recent uh, video on uh, video series is four four parts on. <clears throat> I thought it was really interesting. You took the, the book uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And you took uh, captions out of it, you know, a paragraph here and there. And then you kind of applied it to poker. Uh, I've read that book. Um, it's uh, <laughs> and There's a lot of little golden nuggets like that that I think you brought out perfectly for, uh, for poker. Uh, the, the majority of it was, was uh, kind of dry. I'm not sure if you found the same thing.
1: Uh, yeah, I did.
0: Yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> the, the way you did the video series was really, really cool. One part that I kind of want to expand on that you talked about was uh, was the uh, physical and mental fitness, and you broke it down into a few bullet points. You put uh, exercise, diet, sleep, meditation, um, basically uh, strategies for coping with the uh, uh, getting excited, uh, stressful situations and, and like that. Could, could you kind of run through those, maybe take a minute on each one and just kind of, what's what's your routine or your standard operating procedure for for exercise, diet, sleep, meditation, and, and stress?
1: Um, I'm better about some of those things than, than others. I mean, part of my motivation for reading this book and for so the the, the whole... Like, reason I, I was doing this in the first place a few months before the world series of poker, I, I asked on Twitter, you know, what, what are some non poker books that people would recommend as kind of preparation? I guess, I, I feel like I've been very focused on like poker details um, of, you know, like again, like doing game theory or, or that, that sort of thing, like the, the, the mechanics of, of playing poker and not so much on, on like, I think there's probably more room for me to improve on the, the like soft skills around poker like the kind of stuff that comes up in that art of war series so i i got some recommendations like i think fi- thinking fast and slow is another really good example for this the art of learning is one that comes up that you hear people mention a lot um and and then you know the art of war i thought could be interesting in that regard as well so some of this is like aspirational for me <laughs> okay, uh, i'm okay. not i'm not great about meditating it's one of those things where like i kind of accept that it's true that i should do it but i I'm not yet at the point where I actually like make time for it regularly, even though a lot of people who I respect do it and recommend it. And I know that there's data on it and I don't really know what the reason is, but for whatever reason, it's, it's not something that I do that often. Um, I do try to have some quiet time during a break, like especially in tournaments, you get like those 15 minute breaks every two hours or whatever. Like I'm not trying to spend that time finding another poker player and, Certainly not listening to their bad beat, beat stories or telling them bad beat stories. But You're
0: not smoking a, a cigarette out in the parking lot talking as fast as you can.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm not even really interested in talking hands for the most. Like, mean, if it's something that could affect like, I'm like, Oh, this guy on my left is really giving me a hard time. He's three betting me constantly. Like, what do you think I should do about it? I mean, I, I guess I can imagine some scenarios where there's like something of kind of immediate strategic relevance that I want to talk over. But in general, I like, I, I really want like a 15 minute break from poker. I don't want to be going over hands. Um, I might have a book or something with me where I'm I'm going to like read or I might, call my girlfriend or, you know, there's stuff like that. But, um, but i sometimes I'll just kind of try to sit quietly. It's maybe not quite meditating in the most formal sense of the word, but I do try to you know have those actual like restful breaks and same thing for a couple minutes before the start of play. Like I, I'm, I typically show up a little bit before the the start of play and try to have a little bit of downtime. Like I don't like to just dive straight in, you know, get out of the car, sprint to the poker room and sit down and start playing. Yeah,
0: yeah, you mentioned um, that in your preparation, is uh, get there early, be fresh, um, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember the quote from uh, Sun Tzu, but it was uh, basically the, yeah. the guy that shows up to the battlefield first, he's going to be the most rested, and the guy that's late and running up there, he's already exhausted.
1: Yeah, actually, that comes up in The Wire as well. I don't know if you guys are, uh, are fans of that, but that's uh, some of Snoop's advice to Michael is, uh, I didn't always get there early or something along those lines. <laughs> don't be late. Um, yeah, and diet. I mean, that was really more. I, I have spent some time working on my diet, mostly just kind of trying to eat less carbs and pay attention to how much sugar You're I'm pretty eating. Pretty
0: thin. So, what's your uh, and Mike's in a uh, weight loss challenge here that he has? I think seven or eight hundred bucks lying on. So, what? <laughs> what do you do? What do you eat?
1: Um, the biggest thing for me, actually, and this is advice that I um, I, I gave to to Carlos, is I feel like. Um, this uh, there's a few of them my fitness pal is probably the most popular one but these like meal tracker sorts of apps um the the way that i I tried to sell him on it was it's kind of like poker tracker for your body Hmm. um but i just i mean i just didn't have very basic data. It is only very basic data, but I just like basic data about of the things that I ate, like how many, how much sugar was I eating? How much fat was I eating? How many carbs was I eating? Like I just didn't have, or even what should the targets be? Like I just had no idea on any of that stuff. This is maybe like four or five years ago. Okay. Um, and so that when I started using my Fitness Pal, it enabled me to identify a couple of things that I was eating that were pretty, like they were really pushing me high on like the carbs or sugar counts and that I wasn't enjoying that much. So like I have not cut carbs entirely from my diet. I've not cut sugar entirely from my diet. I haven't really made that many dramatic changes. It was mostly, honestly, the biggest things were like, bread and milk, <laughs> which are mm. like either sources of a you know, significant amount of carbs or significant amount of sugar, and neither of which was I really enjoying all that much, like to just eat like a peanut butter, like sometimes I would just eat like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich out of laziness, so I was just like, I don't feel like making anything else, I'll just eat peanut butter and jelly, or I would have like granola and milk for breakfast, yeah. which is not the one like granola you sort of think would be healthy, but it's actually like most granolas anyway are very sugary, and the ones that I was eating were very sugary, yeah. so yeah. just trying to find like identifying those things that were very high in terms of um stuff that was that was not that good for me and also that i wasn't enjoying that much so like i still you know on twitter i'll have i have my cookie level like i often bring cookies with me when i'm when i'm playing poker and like we'll eat them at some point so it's not that i'm anti eating that kind of stuff it's more that i look at it as an investment and so i was like well what do i want if i'm only going to eat so many like carbs and sugar in a day do i really want to waste them on like two pieces of bread or would i rather have cookies
2: than like yeah. cookies? yeah for me it's hard to put in there Just talking about Carlos, it's interesting. I mean, he has, you know, he's coming here again. I know he's talking to you about that, Andrew, and every time he comes here, of course, I learn about what total discipline is in terms of bankroll management and (laughs) studying poker. And then we watch some videos that are about being healthy, and I make some vegetarian chili and all this, and then Carlos leaves, and he comes back in four months, and he's put on 20 pounds, and he walks through the door with, like eight boxes of cookies and a 2 liter bottle of, of, of mountain dew so that's, that's that's a hard one that's a hard one to deal with yeah, yeah. Um, I
0: mean,
1: i mean, I'm, it's discipline is definitely something that I still Enjoy. sort of struggle with. I just find like, there were certain things that were low hanging fruit to cut, I guess, as is, is though I would put it. And it was stuff that I just wasn't even enjoying that much. So just like finding other things. And I guess part of it was a willingness to spend money. Also, I was saying, if I, if I increase my grocery bill, my, you know, my food expenses by a thousand dollars a year, a, I can afford to do that. And B, if that also means that I'm you know, I'm able to, and ultimately, I've I probably lost about 50 pounds in the last five years. Yeah. So like, I think if you just ask yourself, is it $1,000 a year to me to lose 10 pounds a year? Um, I mean, for me, the answer was yes. And I mean, even just even from a straight EV perspective, like assuming that you have the upfront capital to do that, it probably is going to pay for itself just in terms of reduced like medical costs later in life, or that's yeah. my, anyway, let alone, like, however, it makes you, you know, if it makes you feel better or whatever. But yeah, so I mean, the, the the discipline side of things is still tricky. When there's stuff that I really want to eat, like I definitely put on some weight around Christmas because there's a lot of like you know cookies and other tasty treats around that I actually want. But I did find that it was a lot of um, it was pretty easy for me to cut some things that I was not even enjoying that much in the first place, and it was just sort of eating uh, as a result of not knowing better. Okay. And I, but I guess not- also finding finding attractive alternatives to those. So actually finding like stuff that I would be interested in eating for breakfast that I could do almost as easily as I could do you know, granola and milk, but there would cool.
0: be a lot easier than granola and milk. What, what, what's your What's your standard uh, breakfast? What do you usually have?
1: Uh, commonly now, it would be um, maybe like either uh, eggs with um, vegetables and one, one way of making this easier because I know like for a lot of people mornings are, are you know a time crunch is you can like saute the vegetables in advance so you could even make like you know four or five portions worth of sauteed vegetables and then you just like do the eggs plus the yeah. plus the vegetables so you can do those um, I've started doing a lot of uh, protein shakes uh, and so that's a good way to kind of get especially i mean i'm not obviously i just mentioned eggs like i'm not strictly vegan but i eat a, or try to eat like a sort of plant-based diet um so the shakes with like a vegan protein powder is a, a useful one as well it's uh, or um like avocado and uh wassa crackers i think are a good um they're not terribly high on carbs relative to uh, the amount of sustenance that they provide so those are probably my most common Breakfast.
2: Steve, Steve, I would selfishly like to get a little free coaching here. And ask about a couple of hands. Can we? Uh...
0: Okay. Um, yeah. You know what? Uh, can we go over uh, the one from the listener, and then we'll we'll dive into uh, into your hands. Sure. If, if that's okay with Andrew, obviously.
1: Yeah. I, I got the one that you. Uh, there, there's there's one that you guys shared with me in Skype that I think was good to talk about.
0: Okay. Cool. Good deal. All right. This one is from uh, Marcus. Marcus, thank you for writing in. He's been at the show. He's been a listener. Hi, Steve and Mike. I'm Marcus from Sweden, and I want to start with saying that I love your podcast. been listening to everything from episode 95 to your latest, and I hope you make many more, because it's just the highlight of my day when you release a new episode. Thank you, Marcus. That's very cool. Uh, It's the highlight of my day when I get letters like this. Uh, Anyway, I have a hand I want to ask uh, your opinion about. It's a micro stake 5NL, so uh, the blind should be, I believe, two cent, five cent um six max zoom table uh okay so the six max zooms are when you know you get a hand and then if you let's say you're in the cutoff and you're waiting for the action to get to you and you're looking down at seven two off suit you can click the fold now button and it will instantly take you to another uh, table in a different position with a new hand and you don't have to wait for the action to get to you so it's a way to really quickly get through a hand you know i mean if you're playing regular cash, you might be able to see 50 hands an hour uh, at the, sitting at a cash game table. At these Zoom ones, you can probably see upwards of 200 hands an hour. So it's a quick way of doing that. So he's playing 5 NL, 2 cent, 5 cent, uh, 6 max Zoom. And he has pocket aces in the big blind. Bolts to the cutoff, and he min bets to 10. So he raises to 10. The button calls, and I guess the small blind must have folds and he three bets to 45. So what 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 do you guys think of his sizing right here off the bat? We get a min bet uh, from the cutoff, call on the button, and then he goes to 45. I like
1: it a lot. This is the first thing that I wanted to flag. You know, sometimes people get aces and their immediate thought is, oh my God, I just, I don't want everyone to fold. You know, whatever, I just, I don't want everyone to fold. And so they'll make a really tiny 3-bet, or even just just flat call. And I think both of those are, are pretty significant mistakes. Like I think what you really want with Aces is to play a large pot preflop. Um, which, I mean, you do need people not to fold for that to happen, but you also need to put money in the pot for that to happen. Like, if you just call here, you're not going to get a large pot preflop. And if you make a tiny 3-bet, you're probably not going to get a large pot preflop. And there's an outside chance someone's going to 4-bet you, which would be awesome, but in all likelihood, that's not going to happen. So, I think people sort of put the cart before the horse when they say, well, you know, I don't want my opponents to fold, so I just raised a small amount. Like your, your actual objective is, is to make the pot larger, and having people not fold is only a step towards that final objective. So if you just focus on the not, on the not folding part and, and you don't focus on the making the pot larger, Part, then it ends up being kind of counterproductive. Like I think a scenario where we just pop it to say 20 cents and then get two calls. It's not really a very favorable scenario. We're going to be out of position to two people. We're going to have kind of flagged ourselves as having a pretty strong hand um, yeah. whether or not people put us on exactly aces. Like we, we've we three that from the big blind. It's going to be sort of obvious what kind of hand we have. And there's going to be some flops that'll be obviously good for us and some that'll be obviously bad for us. And people will be capable of playing reasonably well. They're getting a good price to call and pick potentially either hit a hand or just get into a good bluffing scenario like there are some flops that are bad for aces and you know we don't want to make it too cheap for people to call and see those flops and put pressure on us when they get those flops uh, and we want to have a lower stack to pot ratio when we go to the flop like pocket aces pre-flop is the nuts post-flop it's usually nowhere near the nuts mm-hmm. and You don't want to have a stack to pot ratio of twenty when you're out of position with aces. Like that's that's too much money to put in the pot with an overpair in most situations. Ideally, you'd have a stack to pot ratio that'd be like three or four. You can't always make quite that large of a three bet, um, but because you do have to balance to like you know you don't want to make it too obvious or you 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 want to do want to entice people to call. Like you have to find the right balance between making the pot larger and not just blowing everyone out. But I do think the right balance is a lot closer to forty five cents than to say twenty cents.
0: Okay. I was thinking actually a little bit bigger. I was thinking closer. Yeah, if
1: anything I would go bigger. Okay. Right. Okay. This, this probably is a pot size raise. I would, I would guess you just hit the, the pot button here. Hit the pot button here. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh so we're in the big line with pocket aces. Uh cut off uh, min raises to 10, button calls 10. We make it 45. Uh both players call. Okay. So we got a pot of 137. <clears throat> and the flop is uh Eight, nine, six, rainbow. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite what we're looking for uh, with pocket ace. Uh What are you thinking here? Uh, you're out of position. But before I say what uh, hero does, what, what's what's your line of thinking when we get a flop like this? You know that we can put this in the category of Jack, 10-7, you know, like that.
1: Am, am I talking over? Like, am I supposed to be giving other people room to talk here also? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, talk so much. I, I, I don't really have too much to contribute. I want to hear Andrew, but <clears throat> this is a kind of spot, Steve, where against the best players in my casino, a lot of times I'm just check folding yeah. because they have, they have the range advantage, and I just don't want to. Against the casual players, I'll you know I can bet a good size, and if they have me beat on the flop, they're almost always raising, so I can then start go for more value than later streets. Okay. Okay. I don't know if that sort of. In the ballpark of reasonable, Andrew?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm certainly on the board with checking. Um, so I Go think on. like a good analogy here, even though no one really wants to think in these terms. But I think a, getting a flop like this when you have aces is kind of similar to getting an ace high board when you have pocket kings. Yeah.
0: Which okay.
1: is, a, you started with a really good hand, you got a relatively unfavorable flop. Right, so obviously my my bingo comment was uh, tongue in cheek. This is not the yeah. plot we're looking for. We have- <laughs> no, we got it. <laughs> um, no, I, I know you guys did, but I feel like I should uh, to th- 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 throw a, throw a call back there. Okay. <laughs> so you know you sort of have to recommend, or you you have to reconcile yourself to this is um, like the strength of my hand has changed, right? And and not because, like, you still have a pair of aces, so in some sense you still have the same hand you had pre-flop, but relatively speaking, like, what your expected value was holding aces pre-flop and what your expected value is given that this is the flop are two very different things, and you just have to reconcile yourself to you are not going to make as much money on average with this hand as you anticipated when you first looked down and saw two aces. And I think a lot of people have trouble making that adjustment. They are, they they get excited when they see ACEs, they kind of immediately expect or feel entitled to win a big pot because they have ACEs and they're very committed to making sure they win the pot when they have ACEs, like people in particular, and they not only do people not like getting bluffed, but in particular they don't like getting bluffed off of pocket ACEs. As, as Mike said, this is, Not a good flop, not just for aces, but for your 3-betting range in general.
0: Um,
1: I do think there are some reasons, like the existence of flops like this one might be a reason to 3-bet with some hands that you might not think of as typical 3-betting hands. Like It may be that you have really good implied odds on a flop like this when you 3-bet with, say, pocket 9s because people don't expect you to have 9s here. But that's sort of a separate question. In general, it's not a good, not a particularly good range or flop for your range. You're gonna be doing a lot of check folding on this flop. For instance, if you had Ace King, I would not recommend betting the flop here. It's just too likely that one of these players is gonna play back at you. I don't think it's gonna be profitable about with ace king. So I think with ace king, you're certainly gonna to have to check and fold. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that it can be deceptive to check aces here also and it's not deceptive in the sense of like oh we have a a really monstrous hand and we're trapping people by by checking but it's deceptive in the sense that people aren't necessarily expecting you to be as strong as aces when you check and there is incentive for people both to bluff after you check because they can get you off of hand like ace king and there's also incentive for people to value bet hands worse than aces when you check like if your opponent's just got one pair they might try to, to bet it And so the nice thing about check calling here, as opposed to betting, is that it disguises the strength of your hand in a little bit in a way that may give your opponents the perception that they don't need to bluff when they have, say, middle pair, where if you bet, better players in particular might recognize "Mm, there's a chance that middle pair is good, but I might actually... It, it might be more profitable for me to just turn it into a bluff and you know either call and bluff later or you're just raised right away it's the, the kind of spot where if you bet you're setting people up to put you in a tough spot and they might not even realize that they need to put you in a tough spot if you start by checking and calling um, because that may be how you would play some weaker hands as well like maybe you have 10 9 suited in your range and you're also going to check call that which i would recommend like i just think in general this is not a board where you should be driving the action just because you're the pre-flop three better doesn't automatically entitle you or mean that you should be the player driving the action on every flop. Generally, the player who's better equipped to, to better polarized range or to, to have nutty hands, like range advantage, I guess, is the term Mike used. Um, the, the player who's more likely to have nutty hands is generally the one who should be driving the action. And or the player with higher equity, which is often the same thing, but not always. Here, we are almost certainly not the player more likely to have stronger hands. We may not even have the equity advantage. Um, so, I think that we are not the player who wants to be inflating the pot. In general, our interest, our range, is going to be playing smaller. pots. sometimes it's going to be check folding. I think with aces, it probably means check calling. But I can imagine some opponents where I would just check fold immediately, or some scenarios where I might check and then you fold based on what happens behind me like if there's a particularly large bet that i interpret as value um or if the action goes like that raise i might just fold immediately i don't i wouldn't say that my plan would just be you know check and fold to anything
2: uh quickly not to go back to the pre-flop just thinking about your three betting range you said you got to put you know put pocket nines in there especially when you're playing the lower levels um this could become very philosophical, but in terms of balance is that, I play a lot of two, three sometimes to do with a 400 cap. And I'm like, well, I need to be balanced here. So I need, you know, ACE five suited and 10, nine suited in my squeeze range. Um, is that, is that even unnecessary? I, I don't know. Balance in certain spots. Yeah. That, I mean, I think it, it, I know that balance dumb is dumb. not, is it's zoom. not an end. So.
0: Like, is balance really that important?
1: Yeah, so that, that, that's a good question. Um, I think the answer is it's not that important, but there are cases where it might be Profitably. I mean, it kind of depends on what assumptions you're comfortable making about your opponents. If you look at a flop like this one, and you believe, you know, my opponents are not going to recognize that this is a kind of range favorable board for them, where they should be getting pretty stubborn and be trying to run some pretty big bluffs to get me off of overpairs on a board like this one. If you think that your opponents are not going to do that kind of thing, then I would say you're not going to have the kind of implied odds. So like the reason the 3-bet 10-9 suited is not for balance, right? Balance is not an end in itself. The reason to 3-bet 10-9 suited is that it might be profitable with 3-bet 10-9 suited. It might be more profitable than calling. And one of the reasons it could be more profitable than calling could be that your opponents are going to interpret a 3-bet as very strong and fold quite often. It could be that they're going to look at a board like this one and be willing to put a lot of money in the pot because they think that you're going to be capped on a board like this one. And so ending up uncapped on a board like this one could, um, it wouldn't, the, the, so the reason wouldn't be to like, punish them or, or deter them from bluffing it would be to profit from the incentive that they have to bluff if you think that they aren't going to do that then you don't need to worry about it or you wouldn't want to worry about it does that
2: yeah you know what i mean like I, I think i i just uh i'm lazy i don't study so i'll hear one watch a video and hear one occasionally watch here's some pro use some expression and then i'm like oh i just i'll just like, attach <laughs> on to it i think there was a spot like yeah, this I think there was a spot like this in a uh, in a video I saw where the player's like, "Well, I need uh, board coverage here. I need my opponent to think, you know, well, I could uh, potentially have smashed any flop. Um, I don't know. So that, so that was why I thought ten nine suited here made sense. Just so any sort of middling cards, um, they're not don't necessarily have to put you on an overpair. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess against these sort of uh, people, maybe you want them to put. Put you on overpair so they, they bluff too much maybe and you you get paid with a ten nine.
1: 9 yeah i mean the the, the kind of, the thing about balance essentially is it, it comes down to how comfortable are you making assumptions about what your opponent is is going to do so you know that that optimal in game theory optimal it means optimal against an unknown opponent so okay. if, if you don't know what your opponent If if you're you're literally you're going to make zero assumption about how your opponent is going to play, then whatever if given a certain set of inputs, like you still have to make an assumption about his starting range, for instance. But if if somehow you knew your opponent's preflop range perfectly, but you had no idea postflop, like what his leaks were going to be, then whatever uh, output PyoSolver gave you would be the highest possible expected value strategy. The times when that ceases to be the case is when you are willing to make assumptions about what your opponent is going to do, and that might it wouldn't have to be based on experience with this particular opponent. You might just be comfortable saying um, people at this stake just don't check raise rivers very much, so i'm comfortable assuming my opponent is not going to check raise the river, and therefore i'm not going to do things that pio Saver would recommend me doing. Like, so Sapaya solver might say you're indifferent between betting or checking with his hand on the river because if your opponent does check raise the river, you're going to have to fold it. But if your opponent, if you're comfortable assuming your opponent's never going to check raise the river, then it's going to be correct for you to just bet 100% of the time because your opponent's not going to do the thing that would punish you for betting. And therefore, you can exploit him by making
0: that bet.
2: Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. yeah. So, what did, Mar- what did Marcus do here? <clears throat>
0: Okay, uh, with pocket aces, under the gun to act with a flop of uh, 986 rainbow into 137. He c-bets uh, 100, um, 100 and 137, uh, cut off folds, and button calls. So when the button calls here, um, what do you guys think his range is? Like a lot of uh, maybe lone sevens, um, an eight, a nine, probably
2: not a six unless it's six, seven. Right. Um, probably just to, re- just to re- repeat what Andrew said, uh, obviously we've already, um, we, we don't like the bet, but so, but yeah. And, and, and now the pot is going to be what if he calls it, three thirty seven? you said, so yeah. it's going to, it's almost, it's almost like a one-to-one stack to pot ratio, but anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So the move is checking. Okay. Um,
0: yeah, do you guys you have any
1: have
2: other it. thoughts on that before we go to the turn? Um, I, I don't I think- One like, pair mostly, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I would expect a lot of people are um, want to raise here. Um, if they have stronger hands, it, it's the sort of board. So, for one thing, it looks a lot like you have an overpair. So, there's not a lot of incentive for them to slow play. Like, you're not, like, pocket aces isn't really going to get any stronger than it already is. Yeah. So, like, just calling here when they have, like, a set or two pair really has more incentive to hurt their action than to help it. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways that pocket aces could become weaker than it is now. Um, you know, just as, as more cards come out, aces gets further and further from being the nuts. So, aces is, is, is going to get weaker before it gets stronger and if they can already beat aces then their incentive is probably to start putting money into the pot now um, also, if they had very weak hands, their incentive would be either to fold or to raise as a bluff rather than to call. So I would expect that the call mostly represents medium-strength hands. What exactly constitutes medium, You know, there's some, some wiggle room there. It could even include a few hands stronger than aces. like Some people might choose not to raise bottom two-pair or something. Um, in general, I would expect you know, stronger hands, especially vulnerable stronger hands, like two-pair sets, I would expect to um, raise more so than call and i would also not expect calls from very weak weekends so i think like getting raised here would be the worst case scenario getting folds here might actually be the best case scenario um which is part of why i don't love the bet is that we're like folds are probably better better than calls for us even even if we expect to be ahead now there's going to be a lot of turns where we're likely to lose the pot like that's part of the disincentive of betting is it's not just about like when you're playing with deeper stacks which even here in a three bet pot we still you know we have to play later streets it's not like a tournament where we can just if we three bet, we're just gonna be able to jam any flop because we're so shallow so like once you have to play later streets you have to factor in not just how good is my hand currently but how how am i likely to feel about my hand on later streets and this is the sort of flop where you can look at it and say "Mm, even if there's a decent chance this is good now I, i i can't just go straight to showdown like i'm gonna have to play later streets and there's gonna be a lot of um turns that are bad for me so i would kind of look at check calling here as a little like drawing to a blank turn yeah it's a weird way to think about aces but i I think on this board it's kind of a draw where you're like hoping to get a a blank turn before you put too much money in the
0: pot
2: running deuces yeah okay okay all right what was what was the turn stevie uh
0: okay uh marcus says i put uh button villain on a very wide range lots of suited connectors and such which hits this flop pretty damn good (laughs) (laughs) Uh, turn is a 10. Uh, so I check and he bets 210 into 337. Um, so uh, 10. Now any seven makes a straight because now the board is uh, 10, 9, 8, 6. Um What do you guys read into? Uh, we're, we're checking when the turn hits, right?
1: Yeah, now, now I think is really the time to check and fold. Um, I think, like I, I, as I said on the flop, I was kind of thinking of this as drawing to a blank turn, and yeah. this is the furthest it's possible not. thing from a blank <laughs> turn. <laughs> is like from not, a blank? Yeah, me.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I, no, I, I don't think, like, when people hear check fold, I think they, they kind of assume that means losing the pot 100% of the time. I actually think it's not impossible that we win the pot, um, which is to say it might just go check, 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 check that does happen. It's not going to happen often, but you might win the pot, you know, 10 to 20% of the time in that sort of scenario where your opponent has something like uh King eight and is just willing to check it down with you like that. It's not impossible, um, but you're probably going to lose this pot. And that's a combination of the risk that you're already behind and the risk that you get bluffed. Like this card is bad for you both in it it makes so many hands stronger than yours, and also that it opens up bluffing opportunities that it doesn't take a genius to recognize. Even if you think that your opponents in general are not very good at spotting good bluffing opportunities, this is a pretty straightforwardly obvious one. And there's not really anything you can do about it. Like, just because it's a good bluffing opportunity doesn't mean that you should just close your eyes and call down the faces. The reason it's a good bluffing opportunity is that it's also very plausible for your opponent to actually have a strong hand, and I think this is a case where the board is just developed for you in a very unfavorable way, and there's not a lot you can do about it other than just surrender your hand and kind of accept that whether or not you actually got outdrawn, you got outdrawn. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Villain uh, bets two ten into three thirty seven. Uh, Marcus says, which to me feels like feels too big for a seven. So I don't put him on the straight. My thinking is that he's probably flatted uh flop two pair, but I make the call even though I think I'm behind to evaluate the river. This 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 sentence I actually underlined right here. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> a I make slide. the call even though I think I'm behind uh, to evaluate the river. That basically means you 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 think you're behind and you're you're drawing uh even though you know you got the worst of it.
1: Yeah, I mean evaluating the river. I don't really know what that I mean, I I guess I have a sense of what he means by it, but I don't think it's anything good. Like, your opponent is going to be better equipped to make good decisions on the river than you are. He's in position, and he has a range that's polarized, or he has some combination of, like, very strong hands that he can value bet and very weak hands that he can bluff. You have a very, like, it's kind of obvious what your hand is when you're playing it this way. So evaluating the river is not, like, overall playing the river should be good for your opponent and not for you. Your opponent not as a result of being a better player than you necessarily, just as a result of having this um, structural advantage of what his range looks like relative to yours is going to be in a position to play the river better than you are. So, you know, essentially what we have here is our hero is saying, um, I know I'm behind. I don't really have the right, I mean, he hasn't explicitly said this part, but I think it's true. He doesn't have the right odds to call. Um, and there are times when it can be correct to call despite not having the immediate odds because you think that you're going to be able to play the next street better than your opponent. But here, I think the opposite is true. I think the opponent is going to have the advantage on the next street, which is why we just have to give up. We're not getting good immediate odds to continue and we're not really anticipating profit. Like there's literally no good river for us. Even an ace, our hand is still not going to be all that strong. So, I mean, there's just nothing good can happen on the river.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, river is another 10. So the final board is 10 10 nine, eight, six, any seven makes a straight, uh, possible.
1: Can I say one other thing on the turn?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the, the bit about, Oh, this bet is too big to be a seven. I'm I'm very skeptical of that logic. Um, there's no intrinsic reason that has to be true. Like it's perfectly fine. There are good reasons why a player might make a large bet with a seven. And given this is a zoom game, I think it's unlikely that, Marcus has a read specific on this villain that says this player doesn't make large bets when he has strong hands. I think a lot of people's inclination is to try to read a lot into an opponent's um, behavior when they don't actually have a justification for it and This is why I think it is useful that people have at least this like kind of baseline understanding of of you know game theory or balance or something like that is that there's a lot of cases where people will tend to say, oh, in a Zoom game, you don't need to worry about balance. You just make whatever you think the right play is. But a lot of times you don't know what the right play is. Um, And so I think, so yeah, like if you think you can exploit your opponent in a particular way, you should do that. But there are many cases where you aren't actually going to know how to exploit your opponent. And so having some baseline understanding, and so I, I think what happens instead though, because people don't have that baseline understanding, they just grasp. And so they just kind of make wild guesses about what they think an opponent's, behavior or bet size or something means that's what it looks to me like is is happening here is he just sort of and i think it's not a coincidence that this is a favorable assumption for him you know that he's sort of like oh i don't really want to lose the pot with aces and yeah. happened to find the justification for not folding aces i think it's not a coincidence that he's justifying what he probably wanted to do anyway which was not fold
0: yeah yeah okay i'm glad you mentioned that because he he narrowed it down pretty pretty close to a, a block two pair uh, but like well, that's only a few composts right there. There's yeah, a lot, that, that's there's a good point. too. commoner It's not very likely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rivers 10-10. So final board is 10-10-9-8-6. Um, so I'm pretty sure that he has a busted
2: two pair. Uh, I think we kind of talked about that on the channel. Probably up. is the best best card in the deck for us. For some reason, he has. If he had two pair, we might have we might have just uh, counterfeited him.
0: Yeah, I guess if there is going to be a run runner, that would other than ace-ace or something, that would probably be it. Uh, and I'm ahead, so oh, I'm pretty sure he has a busted two-pair. And I'm ahead, so I don't shove 370 into 757, hoping to get a crying call. Uh, okay, if somehow we found us uh, uh, ourselves on this river, what, um, we're checking again on the river, right? Or do we just shove this to
2: um try to get a call from like a nine. Andrew already left the table and is meditating in the corner, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, crying in the corner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Um well, is he if he's if he's gonna is this one of those spots where if he's gonna check call anyways, why not because the players are gonna be checking back two pairs and stuff, why not just shove it? Because you're going to pay him off with a straight anyways, and maybe you can get him to call with a few worse hands.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good starting point is to say, what is it that we're actually choosing between here? So if, if we were to take check folding off the table, which I don't know that we are, but if we are taking check folding off the table, then we have to make a choice between do we either check call or do we bet for value? And I think too often people try to make that decision just based on the absolute strength of their hand. And so they say like, well, I bet when I have strong hands and I check call when I have medium strength hands. And I don't think that's really the best way to make the decision. Or the, the choice between betting versus check calling is a choice of, am I going to try to squeeze value from bluff catches, or am I going to try to squeeze value from bluffs? Right? But if, if you try to induce bluff catches, you do that by betting. If you're trying to induce bluffs, you do that by checking. So it's a question of which do we think is more likely in this scenario. Um, in theory, I think we're probably still supposed to check here because we just don't have that many sevens. And you know, this hand is not really a great bluff catching hand like there's a decent chance we just end up being indifferent between calling or folding on the river uh if, if he were to bet but i don't think he really has that much incentive to call if we bet the river like we can't really represent bluffs here like what what incentive would he really have to like let's suppose that he's holding a hand like nine six where he does have like a busted two pair what would he be hoping to beat when we shove the river uh, I, I think, in theory, there's really no incentive for him to call with a hand worse than aces. That said, it, it may be the case that players in five-cent games um, just call too much on the river and don't think in these terms that I'm describing right now. So, exploitively, then this is why I'm less confident, you know, giving an opinion, because these are not games that I play. Um, exploitively... Uh, there might be a case for, for betting and just counting on our opponent making a bad call, but I think it would rely, like I don't think our opponent actually has any incentive to call here. We would be relying on him making a mistake by calling, whereas he would have incentive to bluff with me check, but he would also have incentive to value bet with me check. Like, I don't know the check calling is profitable. It might just be that check folding is still the most profitable thing to do. I mean, we are still behind a hand like uh, Jack 10 that might appeal to flop and now made trips. You know, th- there are other things that beat us besides the straight.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, He tanks for a long time. Uh, During this time, I'm thinking he might have the seven after all and putting me on a full house. He ends up folding and I have no idea if I made the right leg against uh, (laughs) against his two pair or if I accidentally made a fold straight. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that
1: that was another red flag for me that anytime you're not sure whether you wanted a call or a fold... Probably should not have bet like it, it especially on the river like if things are a little murkier on earlier streets Like there's a lot of hands on earlier streets I mean actually including when you threw that aces pre-flop like you benefit from both calls and folds Right if you threw that aces pre-flop and your opponent calls with 10-9 suited great your head if your opponent folds 10-9 suited Okay Well, that's still a hand that had like a 20 to 25 percent chance of beating you So you still gain something when that hand folds On the river. That's not really true. You know on the river it's pretty much either you strictly want to call or you strictly want to fold. There's not a lot of scenarios where you're um, like, an exception might be when you're like trying to bet someone off of a chop. Like you still have a preference for a fold, but you do like, you don't lose money when they, when they call, but there just aren't that many scenarios. Like in general, when you're betting the river, you, either want to fold or you want to call and you should know which one it is. And ideally you even know what hand, like, so if you are bluffing, you know, what hand am I trying to bluff my opponent off of? If you're value betting, you know, what hand am I hoping to get called by? If you're bluff catching, you know, what hand am I hoping that he bluffs? With. And I do think we started from that point. I think Marcus said, I'm betting here because I expect to get called by a counterfeited two pair. I want to get called by a counterfeited two pair. So I think he was doing some of this work. But I think the fact that he later found himself wondering, like, well, maybe he'll also fold a better hand, that is is a red flag to me that this bet didn't really make a lot of sense in the first place.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you for the hand, Marcus. That was uh, interesting, brought up some good discussion. Mark,
2: probably- well, do not listen to the podcast before you go to sleep because you'll be dreaming about Steve. Just that—that's the only thing I have. <laughs> it's not such a bad thing.
0: You—you <laughs> uh, you got one, uh, Mikey?
2: Yeah, um, I got one from last night. Um, I'm playing two five mostly these days, which is a eight hundred dollar buy-in. But me and the villain here are two thousand effective. Uh, we had the straddle going. And I open, uh, I have pocket sevens in the small blind and it folds to me and I raise to $30.
1: Okay. Sorry, so what was, what was the action before it got to you, Mike? Uh, it folded to me. Okay, so you just, you just opened for 30 from the small blind?
2: Yes. Okay. Um, it, here's kind of the question about, I don't know, if metagames, the, the guy in the big blind, who's the villain here, is uh, the best player at the casino Um, he he goes to LA and plays 1025 a lot, but he lives five minutes from the casino. And sometimes he just comes in there, you know what I mean? A couple days to a week. Um, so I I try to avoid him for the most part. Plus the table's weak. There's one other pro other than the villain here. And there's a few, uh, guys with, you know, $1,500, you know, 300 big blinds plus who are, uh, on my right. I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'm confused. Um, (laughs) Uh, against this player from the small blind, I'm probably only even opening like fifteen percent at the most of hands. Um, I'm just trying to avoid and not give him any money. But pocket sevens is obviously an open, and uh, he three bets to one hundred dollars.
1: It might just be a fold. Okay, um,
2: uh, I should. I, add- I don't
1: love opening to thirty. By the way, I think. Like I, I think. Probably that that's related to your trying to avoid him is just sort of wanting to like make a make a big raise and um just like charge him a really high price to pay against you to play against you in the first place is that
2: uh, yeah, pretty much I, I don't know in the straddle my normal open is to forty Oh, okay I,
1: I missed that it was straddled that's I, I was thinking it was just two five and you opened to thirty
2: no yeah it was uh, straddle okay. and uh, yeah usually if i'm if I'm in the, like the button I open to forty. Okay. Um, but here in the small blind, it's smaller. I guess when we're deep, I can better defend against a three bet, I guess is my thinking. Um, although I should probably have the same race size in uh, in every spot, I would think.
1: Um, I don't know if that's important. I mean, I think you shouldn't vary based on your hand. Varying based on your position is fine. Like that's public okay. information. Everyone can see what position you're in. So you're not really giving away any information by, by changing that. Um, in terms of whether or not you'd be better off – I, I'm not really sure, and I, I doubt it matters that much whether you're making it 30 or 40 here. I, I don't think it's worth uh, nitpicking over that. I, I was more—I was thinking you would just open from five to 30, and that seemed a little excessive to me. I
2: think—I think 30 or 40 would both be reasonable here. Okay. Um, what was I going to say? It's funny that uh, even opening only 15%, he's still probably three betting 20% plus of the time here. By the way, I should point that out. That—that that was part of my thinking. It's funny, I've talked about a lot of hands when Carlos is here, and this is the only player, the villain here, that he's got any respect for because he's there just to smash everyone else in the mouth. <laughs> the rest of us pros are just kind of avoiding each other and trying to take the dead money to some extent.
1: Wait, why do you think he's three-betting so much if you're like, – do you think he doesn't realize how tight you're opening?
2: Um, I think he knows my mentality here. I, we're friends, first of all. He knows – probably, that I, I, I'm kind of short-rolled for this game. I, I mean, I've probably given a lot of life information that is bad.
1: <laughs> this is one of those friends-like-these situations.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, everybody's always getting hustled. Um, he, I mean, I'm smart. I've gotten better at poker, at least. Right. He knows that I know that playing out of position against him is, like, the one thing I should avoid.
0: Um, Have we had this uh, villain on the podcast, Mike?
2: No. Well, okay, all right. We discussed, we discussed many of hands. <laughs> discussed okay. many hands with him. This is the guy, Steve, I took my wad of, of, of money and threw it at him. So, become- <laughs> <laughs> okay. have got to talk a in code here, depending on our listenership. <laughs> um, I I do call. I, I kind of like the fold. Um, I mean, I think- if you
1: really believe that he's three-betting 20%, you probably just want to four-bet him every single time.
2: Okay but he 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 defends his range he flats every time too one or that deep
1: okay i mean 15% is better than 20% so if he's never folded like you're pushing a, an advantage in that case like it, okay. it, i mean i guess i'm i'm what i'm really doing is is questioning the assumption that he's actually 3 betting that much but if if you really believe that he's 3 betting 20% then you want to have a very aggressive four betting strategy um
2: so yeah 20% is high he's definitely got a decent amount of 3-bet bluffs, I guess would be, I'll just say that.
1: Yeah, even so, the, so the problem with 7s is, it's just, they're not doing that well, like a lot of his 3-bets are going to be hands that have good equity against 7s, um, and then like overall, I don't think you really have much of a, a an equity advantage against his 3-betting range, and your equity realization is going to be very poor, right, because you're out of position, and because his range is like varied enough that it's not like you're just going to be able to set mine and count on winning some huge pot if you flop a set, Um like, your hand is going to be very difficult to play when you don't flop a set. There's basically no good boards for you. Right. And then, even when you do flop a set, it's not like you can really count on winning some massive pot when, even when that happens. So I, I think would, it's too was hard. It's
2: definitely probably called here with, with queen 10 suited, right? That yeah, I'd it. be a lot more inclined to, to play that hand than to play pocket sevens.
1: I mean, it's, okay. it's cl- like, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't even fold eights. But I, I mean, I do think sevens is close. I just think, especially if you are, um, do you think this player is like particularly good or something? I think just erring on the side of getting out of the way when it's close is fine, and probably better for your sanity.
2: Right, uh, um, but I do call, and the flop is 10 six, six, rainbow. What? Uh... My first, my first instinct is that I, you know, I have the best hands seventy-five percent of the time here. Some right uh, yes okay.
0: would you lead out here for like half pot uh, Andrew or you... I, I don't think
1: there's any case for leading um, I mean th- th- this is an instance where your opponent remember we were talking about on the previous hand that uh, the player with the more nutty range uh the, the one better equipped to better polarized range is the one who should be driving the action yeah. like that's your opponent here um, and, and in this case I think like aces is still a nutty hand, even though it's not literally the nuts. Like he has um, those hands are close enough to the nuts that you know he they, they can be part of a polarized range for him. Um, he may or may not have more sixes in his range than you do. I would guess that he does but that's not even the most important part the most important part is like even when you have sevens they're not a nutty hand sevens are mostly just a bluff catcher here if the action goes check check there's a fair number of turns that you can bet but i don't think you want to start by inflating the pot you're not going to be in very good shape if a bet is called essentially like if you were betting here with sevens you'd really just be hoping for a fold
0: yeah okay okay because better hands are always going
1: okay yeah like i I, th- I think we're we want to start by Checking and most likely calling. There could be a case for a small raise, but I would, I think, I would recommend against that. I think you just want to check and call.
2: Uh, yeah, it didn't occur, occur to me to lead. I don't think that's good. Uh, okay. I, I check and he bets uh, one seventy-five. And um, this player again, he anytime you're with him, he's gonna he makes it possible he could put your stack in play. Like I said, mm-hmm. I, I know he's gonna barrel. If I think he's going to barrel the turn quite frequently here, um, quickly he's 170. I think he's C betting is probably 80% plus, like eights and nines and maybe small pairs this is the only hands I can think of. Maybe 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 aces or kings where he's not going to C bet here. Um, anyways, that's, my, that's how I ranged him. And I do. So
1: you're saying you think he's C betting basically everything?
2: Yeah, I'm trying to think I, of hands like he wouldn't see bet. I hands he wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. He, he's see betting a six. I mean, he's see betting pretty much everything other than eights and nines, maybe. I, I'm trying to think of hands. Yeah,
1: I, I think he probably should be betting range here. I, although I do think the size is a little um, like it's hard for him to bet range at this size. There's a lot of hands, like Ace King comes to mind. There's a lot of hands that were small pairs, you know, pocket twos or something, uh, if, if he's three betting those, which he may not be. But there's a lot of hands like those that would be profitable see bets for, say, one third pocket. That I doubt are profitable for what is this like seven eighth spot? Um, I think it's like he, he should be more polarized when he's c betting this big. That's not necessarily good news for you, um, but like I don't think you're necessarily doing any better against his. Maybe you're doing slightly better against the small c bet range than this big c bet range, but not a lot. Um, but I, I would expect that he might be using a different size with. He, he might also have a small c bet size, or I think it would be a mistake for him to be c betting ninety percent of his range for uh this large of a size um
2: i don't know if i was if you had ace king here you would you would probably bet small because in, in my thinking uh this guy is always, always punishing people with sizing and he's always let you're it's always making you think geez how expensive will the turn be
1: yeah and like, so, that, i don't, that's I don't know my that my think it's, it is right to make you think that when he has ace king or when he has pocket fours um, it's it's in his incentive to make you th- it's in his interest to make you think that when he has a, a very polarized right like his very strongest hands want to make the pot very big you know, so he can get more value from them his very weakest hands want to get folds hands in the middle like ace king or pocket fours um, are the kinds of hands that don't mind getting calls for small bets um, and are not going to be in good shape if a large bet gets called, but also don't benefit terribly much from folds. Like, when you do fold, he's not gaining that much from it compared to how much he's losing when you call.
2: Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I made a mental note of that, too, uh, when I three bet with ace-king to see to bet small when I have air, just because... Really I mean, it's not necessarily mean,
1: true on every board. Just in this particular instance, Ace-King is, I think, a pretty – like, there's a pretty good chance it's it's good. It's just okay. not going to be good if a $175 bet is called.
2: Um, well, if he's polarized and he's three-betting with the frequency that I thought, then um, he's got more weak hands than strong hands here. So does that mean it's a call?
1: Um, he doesn't necessarily have to – like, so a polarized range doesn't have to be an unbalanced range. Um, he could just – not use That's the okay. of every single one of his weak hands he i mean he'll if he has a smaller say range as well he would want to include some weaker hands in that range he might also check some weaker hands um, like if he's checking aces and kings he has some incentive to check some weaker hands uh as well in order to benefit from like the fold equity that he's buying on later streets so um yeah i i, I mean a polarized range doesn't have to be an unbalanced range it could I mean, he also gets to do a lot of bluffing here because he has leverage because he's going to be able to barrel turns and rivers with a polarized range as well. Even knowing that he's weighted towards bluffs doesn't necessarily make calling profitable for you because, again, your equity realization is going to be very poor. Even if you could look at his range and say sevens are good 60% of the time here, that doesn't necessarily make make calling profitable because you don't get to showdown by calling and you're likely to have to um, make more negative EV calls on later streets fold away your equity on later streets
2: okay um so what are you doing with the sevens here are you probably folding or
1: um i mean i i do think you should call with it uh, i just think it's very low ev and if you think which it, it sounds so i mean i think if you think he's very good you should be reluctant to make exploitive assumptions about him but if your feel is that he's just um essentially that he's not going to have a a see bet once and give up range. Like you think he's just, if he has nothing, he's definitely going to take it to the river. Then you, it doesn't make sense for you to have a call once and fold range. Like the the reason to have a call once and fold range is to profit from his bet once and give up range. Mm -hmm. So if you don't think he has a a bet once and give up range, then there's no reason for you to have a call once and fold later range, especially with a hand that has no chance of improving or very little chance of improving. Um, So I guess, if you feel confident saying he's going to go to the river if he has nothing, then you need to make up your mind now whether or not you're going to the river. If you think that he's going to, you're not comfortable making an assumption about how he's going to play, then it makes sense to have some hands, probably including this one, that are going to call now and likely fold later streets.
2: Okay. Um, would you ever check raise here, or is that that's the that's the worst of the three options?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I th- it's possible that. As a, like a very low frequency thing, you should do it just in case the turn is a seven so that you're not capped on that turn after check raising. But we're probably not deep enough for that to be a consideration. against such a large CVET, I think you probably just don't check raise ever, hardly ever. And when you do check raise, it's extremely polarized, like just trips plus and bluffs and probably like pocket sevens is, a, it would be sort of a, a combination protection slash value check raise. And I don't think think you're gonna be doing much of that against the large bet.
2: okay um, I, I my thinking was pretty much what what you just said that this is already like a decision for a three street decision whether I call here or not uh I just thought sevens were too good to fold, so I did call uh the turn is a jack of jack of spades
0: okay does that put two spades up on the board or?
2: Um, I I don't know. Okay. Uh, quickly, Andrew, what is your your check? Would you rather check call Jack Queen suited with a backdoor flush on that flop than sevens?
1: Um, I don't think it's an either or decision. I think you probably need both because sometimes the turn is a queen or a jack, and sometimes it isn't. So you want to have some hands like you want to avoid being in a scenario where he can look at a particular turn card and say well, that card's obviously bad for mike gotcha so you know you want to have some hands that are going to fold when the turn is a queen and some hands that aren't going to fold when the turn is a queen and some hands are going to fold when the turn is a spade and some that aren't going to fold when the turn is a spade uh that's the, the,
2: like the you know, board coverage concept that we talked about earlier um probably from his perspective he can definitely um for the most part cap my range because i don't have that many sixes um i could have tens but um could
1: you? Would you? Wouldn't you 4 bet 10?
2: Uh, well, that's true. I, 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 might, I might do that. But um, like I said, I'm just trying not to play big pots against him, which he's, he's aware of still. <laughs> <laughs> um, I check on the turn, and he bets 450.
1: Uh, you made your decision on the flop, right? Yeah, I was
0: going to say, I guess we just pissed away uh, 175. We don't call here, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, know, I mean, if,
1: if you think the flop was a bad call, you shouldn't compound it by calling the turn. But if what you said on the flop was, "I just I expected that he's going to barrel off too much," then essentially you exploit that by doing, you know, too much calling, too much bluff catching.
2: I don't know if this is a po- let's just let's just say this is someone you had a lot of hands with online. And you let's just say my stats are somewhat right, where he's three betting twenty percent, c betting twenty percent, and a seventy percent, and then firing another barrel seventy percent of the time. Um,
1: yeah, I mean then you're back to being probably like indifferent to calling the flop, um, and also indifferent to calling the turn. I mean it's not a very <laughs> sexy answer, but. Right. Um, Yeah. It's just like, if, if he's like, you have a bluff catcher and a bluff catcher against the polarized range is
2: indifferent between calling and folding. Um, I do think he's giving up on a fair amount of rivers, but, um, yeah, I I just decided to fold here. Um, like I said, there's a lot of weaker players at the table and, uh, it always feels dirty giving this guy my money. He's, he's up 40 K on me probably the last five years. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I actually like folding pre. I I think that solves a lot of problems. Folding or four pre.
1: Yeah, I mean th- this is the main thing I wanted to caution against when, like, when you said on the flop, like this was just too strong of a hand to fold. I think it's worth looking forwards a little bit and saying what's what do I think is going to happen on later streets. Um, you know, first off, there's a question of do I want to make an exploitive assumption that you know, if you think this guy's going to um, barrel off too much, then the right play is just call and close your eyes call down to the river, except on the very worst runouts. If you think he's not going to barrel enough, then the correct play would be, you know, call the flop and fold most turns. And if you aren't comfortable making an exploitive assumption, then you're going to be indifferent already on the flop. It's not really a matter of, you know, this hand is is too strong because we're not, it's not a one street decision. It's a, um, like the, the absolute strength of the hand doesn't matter very much, I guess. It's, uh, you're, you're, you're already facing a polarized range on the flop. So the fact that you have sevens is, kind of irrelevant um, other than sort of like board coverage reasons.
2: Okay. That makes sense. Um, can I do one more hand, Andrew? Is that okay? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I got to go in a few minutes too. So I'll try to fly through this one. This is two five two and I'll, I'm going to be 1100 effective with the villain. Two five uh, also or two five with a $2 button straddle. Um. No, this is two five with no straddle. Okay. You, said. you said two five two. So I was... Oh, also, yeah, sorry.
1: That was a lame joke on my part.
2: Sorry. Uh, okay, we we don't do button straddles at my my casino, so I, I didn't get that. The two dollar button straddle that would be new to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, middle position limps, and the button and the small blind both call, and I have king queen of hearts in the uh, big blind. Bombs away. You're going to squeeze with that one, I think, right?
1: Yeah. I think this, and, and, and unless you have some reason to think that the original limper is, like, extremely strong, I think you just want to make a – like. so what are what are our stacks?
2: Um, I know the uh, – I can't remember. The button – uh, this, this, this hands from a while ago. I, I know me, I'm effective $1, $1,100 with the button. It's, okay. like, the, the only thing yeah. I worked out. I'd probably I make it like 40. They're all, casual, they're all casual players, so there's a fair amount of limping. Yeah, I, I think you want to make it like 40. Um, I make it 40. Okay, great. Good job. I get to feel smart. Um, only the button calls the original Razor, uh, the original limper, and the small blind both fold. Okay. The flop is Jack 10 4. Two hearts. Nice. Wow. So I think it might have actually been the jack and ten of hearts. Sorry, this was a while ago. Steve, me, me and you might have already discussed this end. I can't remember. I don't think so. I don't remember this end. Um, So I, I flopped the uh, the royal draw. But, um, so I I assume we're always the betting there. Sorry, Steve. 90 in the pot? Yes.
1: Um yeah I I wouldn't start with the assumption that you're always betting. I think let's let's start instead looking at your range. Um do you anticipate c betting this board 100%? Do you think there are going to be hands that you're going to check fold after making this big raise preflop or check call for that matter?
2: Um I think I'm I'm c betting quite a bit here. Other like other than like top set um I don't know. Maybe some, maybe some gutter balls or something. I don't know. Maybe ace queen. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't know what my check well, should look like. Once, once
1: we it. start including ace queen, that's a lot. I mean, that's the, you got sixteen combinations of ace queen and sixteen of ace gang. So even if you're not, you know, check folding the heart or you know, checking the hearts, um, which you know, arguably it, it's possible. Like I wouldn't take it as trivial that that you should bet those. But um, I mean, if if you're checking when you have Ace-King, Ace-Queen without hearts, that's 30 combinations right there. So I do think it makes sense to think about um, your opponent is going to have some incentive to bet after you check. He's going to have hands that want to protect against Ace-King, Ace-Queen. He's going to have hands that want to bluff against Ace-King, Ace-Queen. And um, you're going to want to have probably some kind of check-raising range. This is a hand that definitely has some appeal as a check-raise. Like I'm I'm not saying check raising is definitely the right play, but I wouldn't just automatically look and say, Oh, that's a good flop. So I bet like there are reasons why check raising or even check calling could be good.
2: Um, Yeah. Exploitively. I don't remember the specifics of this player too much, whether he's, um, whether his bet when check two is high or um, your average
1: opponent is probably too passive, which would be an argument for, you know, for erring on the side of betting.
2: Okay. Okay. Uh, I bet uh, 50. Is that the right size? Are you trying to pump this pot up right away in case you know we hit our hand, we can somehow get it all in by the river maybe?
1: Uh, this is 50 into 90? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you probably want to go a little bigger than that. I don't think you have a lot of really depolarized bets here. Um, I think you're mostly – mostly you have either a pretty strong interest in a call or a pretty strong interest in a fold when you're betting, and that's an argument for betting a larger size. Mm-hmm. I guess that the closest mm-hmm. thing you would have to like a depolarized betting hand here might be like ace-10. Um, but I think in general, you either have a pretty strong hand, like top pair plus, or a hand that's a draw of some sort we are pretty happy to get folds. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't think you're doing a lot of like straight protection betting here.
2: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Okay.
0: Okay.
2: Um. The turn is the three of clubs. So
0: villain calls. Villain calls. Villain calls one ninety in the pot. Turn is the three clubs. Yes. And we're
1: like
2: here's the spot that I'm sorry, Andrew. We still have a
1: thousand dollars behind. Yes. Yeah, if, if we were shallow enough, I, I would find check-raising all-in appealing. Um, check-raising could still be okay if you think he's going to bet too much when checked to, but probably he's pretty capped here. Like, the, So the nice thing about the three of clubs is that if he was capped when he just called the flop bet, the three didn't uncap him. Um, so this can be an opportunity. Like, You now are in a position to really rep. Big hands hard. Um and you get to do a lot of bluffing, both because there's a lot of money behind and because your opponent is is capped. There's not a lot he can do about it. So this could even be a good overbetting opportunity. Um but I, I think you probably just want to vomit here, like pot or yeah, probably just pot.
0: I was thinking like two ten before you started talking, but is that Yeah, I think you're in the right neighborhood. Okay.
2: Um yeah, I think this is a a bad bet. I feel like I do this a fair amount where I kind of I'm chasing a draw out of position and like I get called on the flop and then I'll try to kind of set my price on the turn. Yeah I I don't
1: I don't think you want to think of it as setting a price. I think you want to think of it as you're trying to get a fold really. Um, Your your objective here is not see the river and hope to improve. That's like the backup plan. What you really want like the best case scenario for you is just getting a fold right now.
2: Okay Um, that makes sense. Uh, I bet ninety, and the villain here. Um, maybe this villain's better than we thought, because he and that he wasn't capped. I don't, I don't know, but he he raises to two sixty.
1: I mean, you have the best possible bluffing hand. Um, so the only reason not to shove here, I think, would be if you, which is this, by the way, is very plausible. <laughs> the, the the reason not to shove here would be that if you think he just always has it when he calls flop and raises turn, which many people do. But if you think that you know, he is gonna sometimes fold to a shove, this is like the perfect semi-blocking hand.
2: Um and if he's got two pair plus here mostly, then it's just a call.
1: Yeah. If, if that's our read. I mean, there's even a chance it's a fold depending on what um I mean, I, I don't think you're getting the right price, the right immediate price to draw to your out. So you have to be banking on either profitable bluffing opportunities on the river or profitable value betting opportunities on the river, which you may well have, but I guess I wouldn't take it as trivial that if you, if, if he literally always has it here, I, I don't know the calling is trivial.
2: Um, again, this would be like a player dependent. If If I don't think I'm getting paid by when my flush hits, then is it definitely a fold because we're just not,
1: I don't know. I mean, you, you, you might still have implied odds, say, on an ace river if he's going to expect you to have a flush draw or even more so on a nine river if you think oh, yeah. it's a, like hero call because it looks like a busted flush draw or something. I, the, the point I want to make is just that it is going to be dependent, I think, on you over-realizing your equity on the river. Um, like, I don't think you have the right immediate equity to to call given the price that you're getting. I, I could be wrong about that. I'm not doing the math in my head. But uh, I think there's a decent chance to that if you just like – Assumed that you had to go to showdown with no further betting, and you just counted your outs relative to your pot odds. You very well may not have the right price to call. So it then, you know, in order to make the prop, the call profitable, you'd have to be anticipating outperforming your equity in some way on the river, which would mean either bluffing sometimes when you missed, or value betting sometimes, you know, successfully value betting when you hit. Um, yeah, It
2: looks like one seventy to win a pot of six ten. So yeah, I'm. Uh, that's not good enough. I I would need um, a little better odds there if we're just talking about equity in the pot. Um, I do call though um, I guess the worst the worst uh, I, I I gotta say shoving at the time I don't think occurred to me, but like I said this was my read that he's just very strong, but it still might not be a horrible play. Um, the river is the seven of diamonds.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to check fold. I don't think Uh, you can really represent anything.
2: uh, Yes, uh, that's what I did. I checked and he bet uh, 400 and I folded. So at least one street I played it well.
1: Yeah, the the flap you nailed it on that size thing. I think most people don't raise enough in this situation. Most people feel like 40 is like too much for some reason for that they can't really articulate. Um, whereas in fact, like I'm perfectly happy if everyone just folds and if they do call, I still expect to be ahead of their calling ranges. So I don't
0: think 40 is an unreasonable size at all. Mm-hmm. Mm. No. Sounds so, good. Awesome. Well thank you, Andrew. Um yeah, pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, this was cool. Uh, if you guys want to check out Andrew's podcast, it's the Thinking Poker podcast. Uh, you're up to almost 300 episodes, right?
1: Yeah, we just released 282 on Monday.
0: 282, yeah. It uh,
2: had a lot of
0: interesting guests on there uh, Andy Block, Vanessa Selps, Carlos is on there quite a bit, Alexander Fitzgerald. Um, you know, you have almost 300 to choose from. So uh, definitely check it out. I got started. You guys were the first podcast that I ever listened to. Uh, oh, wow. ever. And then right after that, it was uh, TPE. So it's <laughs> very cool. Um, and uh, if you guys want uh, to get coaching from you, Andrew, where could they go? Uh,
1: thinkingpoker.net. And there's a tab on there called coaching that has some additional information. Or if people want to just email me, andrew at thinkingpoker.net. Uh, and we can, we can correspond that way as well.
0: Okay. Awesome. Right on. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Mikey. And thank you for tuning in. Here is your weekly motivational speech. If you work your
1: ass off, you're totally focused, you're trying to serve something larger than yourself, and you really are executing what works, you need a little grace. You might want to call it luck if you prefer um, God, the universe, but it's there. And we can all achieve. But I think the more important skill, if you ask me, is to have an extraordinary life is the art of fulfillment. And it's an art, it's not a science. Because there's a science to making money. I don't care who you are, if you do certain things, you're going to have too much financial stress. You do other things, you're going to have an abundance. There's a science. There's a science to your body. Everyone here is biochemically different, different genome, but there are certain fundamental patterns that if you and I follow them, you're going to have tons of energy, and going to feel good. If you break them, you're going to pay the price and have low energy or disease, but fulfillment is an art. What's going to fulfill you is different than the other person next to you. You're not going to learn
2: that from anybody else. You got to find it because success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure.